And so on that, uh, we are talking about overcoming offenses uh, this morning as our uh, third last defining moment truth. And by offenses, I mean, you know, er everything from wrongdoings to insults to crimes to deception to people sinning against you, all sorts of offenses that have led us either to be offended or to be the offending ones. In fact, I'm willing to bet that as we look back over our lives at many of the defining moments that we have experienced, a lot of them have to do with either things people have said or done to us that have offended us, or on the flip side, we have said some offensive things or done some offensive things to, to others. And so maybe for some of you, you've, you're very fortunate in how you've handled those offenses and you've, you've, made, you've, you've pretty much been able to move on from them well in life. But I'm guessing for a lot of us sitting here this morning, that hasn't been the case. In fact, maybe we've been scarred by them, or we've been angered by them. We have bitterness, we have resentment stored up in us because of them. And we've made some pretty big life-changing decisions because of those moments, some good and some bad. And what uh, saddens me a lot being in, in church world for some time now is that uh, church life is often riddled or, lit or littered with uh, offenses, you know, sometimes big ones like, you know, the pastor running off with the secretary or stealing all the money. But someone once described to me, church offenses are often like a death by a thousand paper cuts, which funny enough was actually a slow form of execution the Chinese used around about the 900 AD era. But you know what it's like, you know, you're shuffling through some papers and you, you get a little paper cut and it's, it's a short, sharp pain, maybe draws a little bit of blood, but you can ignore it, you can carry on, and maybe you get another one, it's fine, it's painful, but you can keep going. But you can imagine, after a thousand paper cuts, or after a thousand little comments made to you, or behind your back, or things done to you, or behind your back. In the beginning, it's fine, we can just, uh, I'll just soldier on, I'll just sweep that one under the carpet, but eventually we arrive at the point and we think, why am I so cynical? Why is my heart so hard? Why do I find it so difficult to trust? Why don't I want to volunteer anymore? It's maybe because some of us are sitting here today and we've been severely hurt in this way from previous church experiences. Maybe you're here at sunrise because of an offense at another church. Or maybe you're sitting here and you've been offended here at sunrise. And I thank the Lord that you're still here. And, and I trust that you've experienced some sort of resolution around that offense. And then for others of us, it's not so much a church offense, but maybe a family offense or a, a friend offense or a, a business offense, you know, maybe something your dad said or did many, many years ago or your brother or your sister or your, or your, your friend or a colleague did something at work and it caused a lot of pain, it's caused a lot of heartache in your life, caused a lot of bitterness. And then... Others of us are sitting here on the flip side of the coin with a lot of regret in our lives, a lot of guilt in our lives because we know we have been the ones who have caused an offense in someone else's life by something that we said, something that we did, and we know we've caused a lot of hurt and a lot of pain in their lives. 
And so the question this morning is this, how do we overcome these offenses, both the ones where we might have been the ones offending or we have received those offenses? How do we overcome these offenses? How do we overcome these hurts and these pains? And so as we come to the next part of our Defining Moment series, Jesus is going to tackle this or address this topic of offense. And he, and he's talk, he talks about it to his disciples, but it's actually aimed at the Pharisees. You, know, you ever had one of those conversations, you know, where you're talking to someone, do you really hope the person behind them is hearing what you're saying? And so that's kind of like what he's doing here, because the Pharisees have caused a lot of offense in a lot of people's lives way back in the first century by their misrepresentation of the truth or by their hypocrisy not failing, or failing to see Jesus as the Messiah. And so Jesus is going to help them and help us overcome these offenses by teaching us three things about offenses. You can see them on the flip side of your bulletin, or we'll put them on the screen. This will give you an idea of where we're going this morning. We're going to see three things to help us overcome offenses. The gravity of offenses, number one. Then secondly, reconciling offenses. And then number three, avoiding offenses. So here we go. Point number one, the gravity of offenses. Or we could say it this way, that we would see, that we would know the the seriousness or the gravity of causing someone else to stumble. To stumble because of something we say or something we do, because of some sort of sin in our lives. Stumble in terms of their, their road towards salvation. Stumble in terms of their morality because of something we said or did or taught or because of a motive that we had behind a decision that we took that affected other people. So, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, you can grab one in your pew Bibles or chair pocket Bibles uh, or click on it if you have a Bible app or you're welcome to follow on the screen above me, but I want you to see it for yourself in God's Word. Don't take my word for it. I want you to see what God's Word has to say about this very, very important topic. So Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 10. We're going to make our way slowly through these verses. So here we go. Just look at verse 1 in the meantime. Jesus, Jesus says this to his disciples, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Just hang in there for a moment. That word... Uh, uh, temptations in the Greek is the word scandalon, where we get our word scandalous from. It actually means a bent stick, a bent stick that sets off a trap or a bent stick that sets the bait and you trip over it or just simply a, a bent stick that you trip over, that you stumble over. And Jesus is saying one of the sure things in this life, in this current age that we're living in, is that there are going to be scandals that there will be temptation to sin. And he says they will come in the form of deceptive traps. And so we might think, oh, it's just a little harmless flirting with a colleague at work. No, no, that's a trap. Or temptation not to disclose this or to disclose that at work to your employer. No, that's a trap. Or temptation to look at something on the internet that we shouldn't be looking at. No, that's a trap. Jesus is saying things like that will come. It's the nature of this fallen world, this fallen age that we're living in. And it's the fallen nature within us. So he's saying, listen very carefully, he's saying temptation to sin will come from the outside, but it will also come from within us. But then he ramps it up and he says, but 
Woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the person who causes someone else to stumble, to trip up in life because of the sin in us. He says, woe. Woe is a pronouncement of judgment. And again, he's saying this in light of the Pharisees. And the primary way the Pharisees and the other religious leaders caused others to stumble or caused an offense in other people's lives was through their false teaching and their hypocrisy. Jesus said this of them earlier in chapter 11, verse 39 of Luke. He says, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. On the outside, you look like you've got it all together, and so people want to follow you. People want to be influenced by you, but inside, it's a different story. You are full of sin. You are full of scandalon, and you are going to trip people up. He says this in verse 46. Again, of chapter 11, he says, For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So he says, Woe to you. You guys don't even practice what you preach. You admonish everyone else to live according to the law, which you know is impossible, which you guys don't even live according to. And you know that the law was there to, to give us hope, to give people hope uh, to this coming Messiah who would fulfill the law. And who's now arrived in the person of Jesus, standing right there. And you are leading people away from Jesus. He came to set people free from the burden of the law. He came to set people free from the burden of their sin. And so Jesus is saying, it's one thing to sin. Listen, it's bad. It's bad to sin. But man, it's seriously going to be bad for you if you cause others to sin in this life. And so we think, well, Jesus, how, how bad is it going to be? What's the gravity of doing it? What's the seriousness of causing an offense in someone else's life? Have a look at verse 2. He says, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And so who are these little ones? It's not just the children, but the crowds who have come to listen to Jesus, who have come to try and understand what the kingdom of God is, little in terms of their spiritual understanding of of God and and, and of the gospel and of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Spiritually naive, people who can be so easily misled and deceived and fall into sin and temptation. He says, if you cause someone like this to stumble, it would be better if you got a big rock that was used to, to crush grain back in those days, if it was hung around your neck and someone dropped you down at Eden Rock and you become part of the, the coral feature down there with the barracudas. Better, than, better to have that then face the impending judgment of God. So, the all-important question is, how do we ensure that we don't cause someone to stumble, that we don't cause an offense in someone else's life? Yes, we ought to recognize the gravity of it, the seriousness of it, but practically how? Have a look at how Luke starts, verse 1 again. He says, and he said to his disciples, he's not talking to the Pharisees, He's talking to the disciples. It begins with who you are following. Whose disciple are you? Because who you are following will begin to influence you. 
begin to influence how you think, will begin to influence the affections of your heart, what you like in this life, the morality of your life, and that in turn will begin to influence those around you. Again, Jesus told us quite emphatically that the Pharisees, were, they were lovers of money, and they loved recognition from man as they walked around in the streets and the marketplaces. And so those were their gods, and those things began to influence them, which then in turn influenced those who were following them and caused them to stumble. Someone who was a, a mentor in my life many, many years ago, I'll never forget this, he said this to me, show me your friends and I will show you your future. Show me who you're hanging out with. Show me who's influencing your thinking. Show me who's influencing what you like and what you don't like in this world. And I will show you how you end up. Will they cause you to stumble? And will you in turn cause others to stumble who are following you? But what if we're following Jesus? Well, this is the greatest news in the whole world. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, not only has he destroyed the power of sin, scandal on over our lives, but he has also taken the penalty of all of our sin upon himself, past, present, and future. In a sense, he took the millstone of our sin and dropped to the bottom of the sea, a death that we should have died. But he takes it down there, and then the miracle of miracles, he leaves it down there, and he rises again. He rises again to new life, and by faith in him, we get that life. And we begin to experience more and more power over sin in our lives, and we begin to stop causing others to stumble because of our sin, but rather start causing them to follow Jesus, which then becomes so vitally important when someone sins against you. So now Jesus flips the coin. What do you do if now, if, if someone sins against you? Point number two, reconciling offenses. Have a look at verse three. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And I'm thinking, wow, that, that is so counter-cultural. That is so counterintuitive. You know, in, in our fallen nature, we just, we just want to we want to get back at the person. We just want to write them off. We want to harden our hearts towards them, especially if they repeat offenders. And so as disciples, as disciples of Jesus, what are we to do? Well, the first thing he tells us here is we are to pay attention to ourselves. Other translations say take heed or be on your guard. You know, whether it's pointing backwards, pointing backwards into yourself, be on guard about the sin that is in your life. Pay attention. Don't let that sin out to cause someone else to stumble. And then secondly, be on your guard when others want to cause you to stumble because of their sin. How are you going to react? And so as disciples of Jesus, we are to react. We are to respond in a way that reflects who we follow. And so that doesn't mean being a doormat. As Christians, we are not to be doormats, but rather we are to take proactive, redemptive steps. And the next step we take is, is to rebuke. Now, 
This does involve some form of confrontation. I know many of us here might not like confrontation. I don't like confrontation. But it means informing someone of the wrong that they have done against us. It, it is a form of reprimanding. But now, the way you reprimand can either cause more damage, more consequences, more offense... It can make matters worse. You know, you, you want to justify yourself to such a degree that you crush the other person. Now, that's not paying attention to yourself. That's paying attention to revenge. There's a big difference between rebuking and revenge. But the rebuke in this sense is to bring about the next step, number three, repentance in the wrongdoer. So we do want them to see what, that what they did was wrong, but we want them to turn from their ways. We want them to change their mindset. We want, it, we want them to change their heart attitude so that they can follow Jesus, continue to follow Jesus, or begin to follow Jesus for the very first time. In other words, there's a redemptive motive to our rebuking. Not to show how right you are or to show how wrong they were. You want to disciple them. You want to help them. You want to point them to Jesus. It's all about discipling which then leads to the ultimate goal, that of forgiveness. And forgiveness has two dimensions to it. The first dimension is setting the perpetrator free from what they did or said to you. Just setting them free. And then secondly, setting yourself free from the emotional baggage that comes with that sin that they did to you. The anger, the resentment, the bitterness that begins to weigh down on us. To set ourselves free from it. To experience peace and hopefully reconciliation with that person. And I know this is harder. I know you're sitting there and you're thinking of all the current offenses in your life or the ones that have happened to you in the past. And you're thinking, it's not easy, Jason. You have no idea what happened to me. You have no idea what you're asking me to do to forgive that person for what they did to me or what they said. Well, it gets worse before it gets better. Have a look at verse 4. Jesus goes on and he says, If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And according to first century Jewish culture, it was considered gracious to forgive the person three times. And Jesus is saying, mm -mm. add another four times to that. And the frustrating thing, he, he doesn't say, if they're genuine, then forgive them. He just puts the response, he puts the onus on us. He says, you forgive them. And if you're thinking that's impossible, it's not a bad thought to have. Or if you say, no, Jason, seriously, a miracle needs to happen in my life for me to do that. In other words, God, you need to do something seriously in my heart to help me forgive my husband, my wife, my boss, my colleague, that person, that person, for what they did to me or what they repeatedly said and did. God, I need something seriously miraculous to happen in my heart. Okay, that leads straight to the secret behind reconciling offenses. Have a look now at the apostles' reaction to this. Verse 5, the apostles, that's the larger crowd that followed Jesus. They heard this and said to the Lord, increase our faith. 
exclamation mark, as in, are you kidding me? That's, you, know, you know why they would, they, would, they would say that? Not only because of the Pharisees are just putting so much burden on them through the law and, and through whatever else they were teaching, but also remember that the Jews were under the, the oppressive rule and regime of the Romans. And Jesus is saying, you've got to forgive. And they're just saying, okay, well then we need faith and we need a lot of it. And then Jesus says this in verse 6, and the Lord said, if you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, maybe you're staying under a mulberry tree, I'm not too sure, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So the answer to the impossible task of forgiving someone and forgiving a repeat offender and maybe even for us being the offenders, he says, is faith. And the disciples are thinking, well, we need a lot of it if you want us to obey what you're saying here. And Jesus' response to this is quite puzzling to me. He says, if your faith was the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, yeah, be uprooted and go plant yourself in the sea, and it would do that. Now, at first I thought, well, is that an indictment of their faith? Is he saying, guys, your faith is rubbish? Your faith is not even as big as a mustard seed. Because if it was as big as a mustard seed, then things could happen, things could change. Things could change in your relationship issues and all of the offenses that you're experiencing in life. Or is he saying the complete opposite? Is he saying, guys, it's not about how much faith you have. Because you just have to have faith the size of a mustard seed. He's saying it's not about the quantity of your faith but about the quality of your faith. It's not about how much faith you have, but about the focus of your faith. I think too many Christians view their faith like their bank accounts. The more money they have, the more stuff they can get. So the more faith I have, the more stuff I can get from God. We begin to view God as a shopkeeper. And so we go to God with our bags of, of faith and go, look God, I've got five bags of mustard seed faith what can I get? I don't want the forgiveness package. I want the lightning bolt package. I want you to take out my boss for what he said to me on Friday. And you have to obey because look, I've got five bags of mustard seed size faith. It's not how it works. Have a look at how Sam Storms explains this. He says, faith is not a weapon by which we demand things from God or put him into subjection to us, says faith is an act of self-denial. Faith is a renunciation of one's ability to do anything and a confession that God can do everything. Faith derives its power not from the spiritual energy of the person who believes, but from the supernatural efficacy or ability of the person who is believed, in this case God. He says, it's not faith's act, but its object that accounts for the miraculous. You see what he's saying? He's saying faith is just simply the bridge between you and God who can do the miraculous. That's why the apostles ask for faith. Because they know in and of themselves, they can't do this. It's impossible to forgive someone seven times in a day for doing the same thing to you. And hopefully you and I, we're thinking the same thing. 
We need something supernatural outside of ourselves to swoop into our heart, to soften our heart so that we can forgive, or to swoop into someone else's heart so that they can forgive us. Jesus is saying, you don't need faith the size of the mulberry tree. You need faith in the one who can move the mulberry tree, the one who can do the impossible. Your offense or our relationship dynamics is an issue of faith, not of the heart first and foremost. I mean, our, our hearts are fickle. Maybe I'll, I'll speak on my own behalf. My, my heart is fickle. It's full of emotions that are dictated to me by my circumstances. My wife cooks me a good meal, happy heart. My wife cooks me a bad meal, bad illustration. Let's say um, your, your favorite sports team, your favorite sports team loses this week, unhappy heart. Your favorite sports team wins the next week, happy heart. Our emotions are dictated to us by our circumstances. Our hearts are fickle. But faith, faith is outside of ourselves. It's outside of our situations because our faith is not in ourselves, it's in God, this God who can do the impossible. And that is how God is most glorified in our lives through our tough relational situations. God is most glorified when we are most reliant on Him because it gives us no room to boast in our own part. It goes for all of life, not just our relationships. The more we rely on God, the more He is seen and shown to be God in our lives and we're not. Second reason let me give you a second reason why faith in Jesus is so important in helping us overcome offenses or people's sin. And that is this. Jesus knows how to forgive his entire creation who turned its back on him. You ever thought about that? Jesus knows how to forgive his entire creation, his prized creation, who turned its back on him. Put some Bible underneath that. Have a look at this. Romans 3, 11 to 12 says this. This is talking about human, humanity. This is talking about mankind, God's prized creation, right? Paul writes, and he, or he quotes, he says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so as God looks down at his prized creation, at mankind, that's what he sees. He sees self-righteous creatures that he created in his image and likeness to live after his glory because he knows that that would bring them the most joy and satisfaction in life. But instead, they, we've turned aside. We've turned aside to seek after other glories, our own glory. So what is a God to do? Does he just simply smite us, take us all out? Does he just pretend it didn't happen and just kind of sweeps it under the spiritual carpet? Here's what he does. Now this text that I'm about to, for, we're about to read, it's a mouthful, right? And, and, and many very clever theologians have written very thick books just on these few verses and have preached many, many sermons on these few verses. So we're just going to get a quick snapshot off of it. So we're still in Romans 3, Paul writes, he says this, For there is no distinction for all. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter your ethnic background, he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
right? So what does God then do? Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so let's just keep it really simple. He's saying everyone has sinned because we're born sinners, right? You want to know why, why, why do we sin? It's because we're born sinners. And so what does God do? Does he, does he just ignore it? Does he just sweep it under the carpet? Does he take us out? No, no, no. Paul says he justifies us, meaning he he declares us just. He declares you righteous. He declares you forgiven. And this declaration, he says, is a gift. It's a gracious gift. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it because we're sinners. But someone paid for it, Sunrise. Someone paid for that declaration over you. Jesus paid for it with his life. Paul says it was an act of propitiation. Now don't switch off when you, you hear that word. It's an important word. What it means is that Jesus' sacrifice for us satisfied God's righteous wrath against our sin. It satisfied the penalty for our sin. It's like this. When I, I um, occasionally do something wrong and, and upset my wife. All I have to do, it's very simple, all I have to do is buy a slab of lint dark chocolate and some flowers, boom, I'm good to go. I'm, I'm off the couch. I'm going to have to buy some on the way home. But here's what happens. The flowers and the chocolate are the propitiation for my sin. They satisfy my wife's anger at my apparent sin. Now I'm getting into trouble. So Jesus takes our sin and the penalty of our sins so that we are forgiven. And here's the kicker. Paul says, this is received by faith. Complete trust in the action that was outside of ourselves. Outside of our ability, a trust that in someone, a trust that in someone else's ability, they have qualified us to be right before God, not ourselves. So can you see what Jesus is saying? It's not about the size of your faith, it's about the object of your faith. And so what has the object of your faith done for you? Well, he's forgiven you for your sin, for turning your back on him, and now through that same faith, he can help you overcome the sin that has been an offense to you or to others through you. So here's our part. Look at verse five again. He says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They still asked for faith. The very channel, the very means needed to acquire the power or the ability of Jesus comes from Jesus. We don't have to muster it up in our own strength. It's a gift. It's a gracious gift from God. He gives you the faith that not only saves us, but helps us to overcome these offenses in our lives. So again, I don't, I don't know all of your stories. And I'm, and I'm willing to bet that you, some of you are still sitting here going, that still feels impossible to do that. Jesus is saying you don't have to do it in your own strength. In the same way that you couldn't justify yourself before a very, very holy God with, because of your own sin, in the same way, you don't have to do this on your own. Jesus, through faith in him, can help you forgive others for their sin against you. Just ask, Sunrise. 
ask for the faith. Jesus, I need the faith. I need your faith to come and help me soften this heart so that I can forgive. Finally, is there a way of avoiding offenses? Jesus says we can't totally avoid them because like he said in the beginning, sin is inevitable in this current world that we're living in. But there is a gospel shape, there's a gospel-influenced mindset that we can adopt that can help us. So point number three, avoiding offenses. And by avoiding offenses here, I mean both in terms of being offended and being the offending one that causes offense or sin in other people's lives. And again, what a what I think Jesus is going to show us in this little parable as we finish off is that there is a heart disposition that we can have that can help us avoid them. So read verses 7 to 10 with me. So he launches now into this parable and he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me? Dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And I'm thinking when I first read this, I was like, wow, that, that sounds a bit harsh, Right? I mean, this guy's been plowing the lands the whole day. He's been looking after this sheep. He gets home. He has to freshen up. He can't eat anything yet. He has to freshen up, make dinner for his master, serve his master the dinner. And he doesn't even get a thank you at the end of it. And so we think, oh, there's definitely room for this guy to pick up a fence here. Not so much as even a thank you at the end. But here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's tackling the attitude of entitlement. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've slaved away for you. I deserve some sort of recognition here. Again, no doubt, aimed at the, at the Pharisees who were probably in earshot, who very proudly and earnestly lived according to the law and made sure everyone knew about it and made sure God even knew about it. Look at us. Look at how much we tithe. Look at, look at all the, the good things we do in life. Look at all the bad things we don't do. Do you guys see that? God, do you see that? Because if you see that, that means I deserve that blessing. I expect now that blessing because look at all the stuff that I'm doing for you. Instead, the attitude Jesus says we are to have is that of unworthy servants. And again, I'm like, oh, that still sounds a bit harsh. Not until we look at it in terms of the gospel. Are we worthy to serve God? Do we really believe that we have the holy, righteous requirements to serve God, to be in his house, to be in his kingdom and serve him? Because the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he said, no, no, your righteousness and your righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him. Romans 3 verse 23 that we saw in point two, we have all, fallen, we have all sinned and fallen short of, of God's glory. And so what are, what are God's standards? Well, it's his glory, and none of us are at his glorious standard. But here's the kicker. Here's what's so interesting. This parable says the servant is unworthy to serve in the master's house, but there he is, serving in the master's house. And so well, think, well, how is that possible? How come if, if all of us have fallen short of God's glory, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him, how come we're here? How come we're here sitting here? How come we've been standing praising him with our lips? 
It always comes back to the gospel, Sunrise. You are qualified to be here. You are qualified to be a son and daughter and servant of God by the cross of Christ on your behalf. Our ultimate master served us with his life so that we might serve him with our life. This servant in this parable should have been saying, thank you that I get to plow your fields, that I get to look after your sheep, that I get to serve you dinner because I know it was a great cost to yourself that I'm in this house. I am unworthy of that grace. I am unworthy of that mercy. That's the gospel. The gospel changes our attitudes from self-entitlement to humility, A, before God, and then before each other. And it's that humility that's gonna help us overcome offenses and not cause offenses in other people's lives. And I know, what I'm blown away by this church is that there are so many volunteers. There's a need, people just jump in. And so I know so many of you volunteer in so many different ways. You know, you worship on hospitality, greeting, tech team, and serving so many other ways, I don't even see it. But the moment we shift from servant-heartedness, the moment we shift from servanthood, we set ourselves up for offense because we shift towards expectation. We shift towards entitlement. Hey, I deserve to be seen. Hey, I deserve that position. I deserve to be rewarded. But rather like Jesus, we can let that go and take the form of a servant. Have a look at this quote and then I'll finish off. He says, true servanthood seeks to see the master exalted without thinking about self, recognition, or receiving credit. That's true servanthood. So Sunrise, I I know it's not easy. It's not easy, but I'm convinced. I'm convinced that we can overcome offenses in our lives, the ones that we have caused and the ones that we have received, and experience peace and joy All we have to do is ask. Because I know in and of ourselves, in and of myself, it's almost impossible. But if you ask Jesus, the one who overcame your offenses, our offenses, then it's possible. We ask him for the faith. We ask him for the faith to go and ask for forgiveness or the faith to go and forgive. Let me just quickly speak to those of you who might still be holding on to a lot of unforgiveness in your life. And I know you know this, but I'm just gonna say it. You're not punishing anyone else but yourself. You're not punishing the person that you're withholding forgiveness from. They might not even know it. You're only punishing yourself. And so I'm imploring you, set yourself free through faith in Jesus. Punishment for offenses, punishment for sin is not part of our jurisdiction. That belongs to Jesus. Remember how he started this whole thing off? He said, woe to the one who causes offenses. Jesus will do the judging. You enjoy the peace that he offers you through faith and the healing. Ask for faith, sunrise. Ask for faith in the one who can move the mulberry tree and then go do what you have to do. 
So our defining truth is this. Through faith in Jesus, you can overcome offenses and no longer be overcome by them. Through faith in Jesus, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how shaky, but it's in Him, you can overcome offenses and no longer be overcome by them. Amen? I'd love to pray for you. Lord Jesus, increase our faith. Give us faith because, Jesus, I don't know. You know you know everyone's heart. Yeah. You know everyone's life, yeah, past, present, and future. You know what they've been through. You know what they're going through. You know what they might go through in life. Jesus, give them faith to be firmly fixed on you, the one who can do the impossible because you did the impossible. You died on a cross in our place to destroy the power of sin, death, and the devil over our lives. No one else can do that, only you. And so by faith in you, you can help us do what seems to us impossible, to go and ask for forgiveness or to forgive those who have sinned against us, caused an offense in our lives. Jesus, would you do that, please? Holy Spirit, right now in this place, would you minister to every single person's heart here? Accomplish your purposes in their hearts. For your glory, for their peace, and for their healing. In Jesus' name, amen.